Alrighty, uh, this is Nathaniel Quinn, the producing director of Wolverine Reads. Today I'm joined by playwright Benjamin Gonzalez. Uh, we just recently finished and are in the process of finishing, I guess is the better way to put it, uh, your production of your play, uh, Up Chimicum Creek. So I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for giving us this wonderful piece of material to share out. Uh, if and you could, you. yeah, you bet. If you would be so kind as to introduce <clears throat> yourself, uh, your name, some of your background as far as a playwright or anything else that you draw into playwriting, um, and and one boring thing about yourself. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so I, I'm my name is Benjamin Gonzalez. Um, I am a uh, instructor, professor, whatever you call it, a temporary position of at University of Central Missouri uh, in Warrensburg, um, Missouri. Um, I'm formerly uh, an instructor, professor at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Um, I am a graduate of Washington State University as well as the University of Idaho. Um, I got into playwriting um, back in, I would say, 1997 when I was bored one day and I wrote a play. Um, and I've, I've, um, I had it produced on the west side of the state where I won uh, second place in a little town uh, uh, playwriting competition. And I had it produced um, through a student organization at Washington State University. Um, I continued to try to write the next few years, um, <clears throat> struggled uh, mightily so, but I, what I did start doing was I started working with playwrights. Um, uh, my, my peers and I started a one-act festival and, and I helped mentor a lot of plays through that as an undergraduate. And um, after I picked up my first master's degree, I turned around uh, that same year and, and started teaching at the same college I, I was an undergrad grad stu student at. Uh, and and uh, right away started teaching playwriting. Um, <clears throat> my my writing myself has has uh, for about a decade um, <clears throat> been somewhat minimal. I, I kind of considered myself a dramaturg or a script coach or you know a playwriting instructor. I very much focused on my students. Um, and then by the time uh, Washington State University uh, decided that it wanted to uh, eliminate its theater program, I started uh, reinvesting in 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 myself um, a little bit more, and I started writing uh, a lot more. And uh, just uh, for the last 10 years, kind of been writing uh, lots and lots of plays. Um, some I've been commissioned for, um, I have some specialty in uh, verbatim theater, documentary theater. Um, I write traditional uh, full-length plays, um, like Up Chimacan Creek, um, one-act plays, 10-minute plays, um, I recently wrote a one-act play for Connections Theater, a, a Wyoming-based uh, uh, theater group that is somewhat uh, branching out to uh, a national group. Is that the program that's up near Sheridan? No, that's that Danny Hodnett's program. Um, uh, Connections is with John O'Hagan, Chris Will, uh, okay, Jason okay. Kaskula, um, that group of people. Um, they're, you know, that's, that's another group to explain, but it's, it's, um, uh, starting to 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 really build itself up uh fortunate to be a part of that group when i started teaching um our university our theater program was connected to the kennedy center american college theater festival and i, I definitely used as a as a platform for my students to to get responded to um year after year after year we'd have one or two one act plays or 10 minute plays that got selected um, there were semi-finalists for the John Cobble or the Gary Garrison 
uh, awards. Um, so they got to bring their 10 minute plays and have them read and responded to at festivals. So gosh, it was 2014, 2015. Uh, I was asked to uh, become the um, Region 7 National Playwriting Program Chair, um, served my term there, and um, and now just recently the National Playwriting Program Chair for the National Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be serving three years as the vice chair and three years as, as the chair. So I still focus a lot of my energies, not just in my own work, but in a lot of uh, student work, which I'm assuming we'll, we'll talk a little bit more thoroughly. Oh, yeah. Today. Excellent. And the one boring thing about yourself, so much exciting work happened in there. What's the part that, that makes you, connect you to all of us every man? Wouldn't assume I wouldn't be one of them uh, either. I am boring. I have twin five-year-old daughters and uh, we love to make pizza. I would have just jumped right in. Before we started this, I was teasing Ben for, you know, we can't see him because this is an audio medium, <laughs> but he's got suspenders on today. And- right. That is boring. I, <laughs> please let me let me share this. Yeah. I wear suspenders. I've converted to suspenders because as you get older, you know, you you not only become a little bit more sedentary, but you know, your waistline gets a little bit bigger. <laughs> a few years ago, I found myself uh, stuck in my office doing work, having you know, doing TCHTF work, and and you know, going through grading, going through paperwork, building assignments. I realized my belt was not um, comfortable anymore. It was digging into myself, and I was just. Uh, I had to make a change and I realized how comfortable suspenders are. So I am, for those of you who are listening, currently wearing suspenders and, and uh, 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 Quinn had asked me if I was going to go out cutting trees later on. And, you know, we'll see. <laughs> you know, it's really funny the, the different ways that we approach that. You know, you shifted from a belt to suspenders and I went to a drafting table that I could stand at. Yeah, I have yeah. to tell you, I think I have about a dozen pairs of suspenders because there, I have like neon pink leopard print and just very strange loud boisterous styles of suspenders because you can't quite do that with a belt but yeah, you can you really can. say something about yourself with a pair of suspenders this is this is absolutely true there is character in suspenders um <laughs> it absolutely absolutely blows people's mind when you can explain the difference between a pair of suspenders and the pair of bracers that you have on as well <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, we, we, we touched on this, a little bit of background from you, and you know, we're in the process of, I think, at the point that we are doing this interview, we have the first three of four episodes of Up Chimicum Creek up, and we're putting the, the final little bits and pieces yeah. on our last episode, so that'll drop next Monday. Tell us a little bit about your process as a playwright. Um, I know you said you started this whole playwriting endeavor as you were bored one day, so you wrote a play that won awards, and that kind of lit the fuse, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. But where do you draw ideas from? I mean, not, we could talk specifically up Chimicum Creek, or just in general, where do you where do you draw from? That's a that's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, answering that question very deliberately, then maybe you know, talking a little bit more broadly, um, it, they could they do come from everywhere. Right. The Up Chimicum Creek became something I knew I was going to write. I knew I was going to write it when I was an undergrad after I ri- had written that first play. I knew that play was in me ever since I got out of the hospital after an autologist uh, bone marrow transplant, you know, because I, I had cancer when I was in high school. The play couldn't be written then. The play couldn't be written so close to that material because, um, you know, if, if I had taken everything so literal, you know, not only would the play not be effective, to the viewer because it is so personal 
that story wouldn't have been given justice. Um, when I was teaching playwriting for years and years, you know, uh, talking to people who want to write their story as a play, I never discourage them from doing that, but I, I tell them this allegory of this play that's inside me that I know I, I want to write, but I'm too young. I'm too close to that situation to write it. So it was January 2018, I believe, and it was just before I was, it was about a week before school started. So I had this opportunity of, of large amounts of time. And I was, I was not only finishing my last year at Washington State University, but I was going in for a second master's degree at University of Idaho. Mm -hmm. And I took a shower one day. And it was one of those showers where, you know, you, you forget, you know, oh, did I wash my hair? <laughs> you know, did I, I, I forgot what I cleaned. But I don't know how many songs, you know, have gone by on the, on, you know, bathroom stereo, but uh, I came out and I said, I, I told my wife, Mary, I, I've got to go write. And, and she's been with me long enough that uh, it's, it's, first of all, it's no small task because we have two little children. Right. Um, so when I say I got to go write all day, she's like, she is not begrudging. It's a, okay, I totally understand, but I want you to remember, I will have the girls all day. <laughs> <laughs> to which I say, yes, I see you and I hear you and I love you. So I, I, I quite literally went down stairs and sat in my, uh, in my computer for 12 hours and wrote the first act and the last scene of up Chimican Creek. I think it's about 50 pages, 50 something mm -hmm. pages, and then went back the next day to finish it. So sudden enlightenment, you know, this, this, this play found a, a way to come out. Um, and it started with the opening scene, you know, the stand is sitting in the shower. And I recall, you know, hearing that, that airplane fly over, um, which functioned as that perfect metaphor for the specter that, that hangs over WB. Sure. Other plays, uh, I've mentioned before, verbatim uh, theater, documentary theater, I've been commissioned to do work, which is um, one of the scariest things you can do when you start to get paid for something that you haven't quite done yet. Um, <laughs> you realize you have to have this done by this day. We have people coming in to perform this play. You better have something for them. Yeah. Um, and and, and you, I hope they like it. I've been very successful in that. So, so setting the deadline uh, for myself has become a norm. Sometimes... Um, because I know that I will give myself a, you know, hey, I have um, this amount of time or the, I, this is what I want to accomplish this year. I read a lot of plays. Uh, I read uh, hundreds of plays a year because of my um, responsibilities with Kennedy Center American Knowledge Theater Festival, as well as I read for just recently, Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Um, I've read for AFA, the Judith Royer Award. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I do a lot of reading, the Playwright Center up in Minnesota. Well, I'm going to uh, interrupt you and I'm going to spring off here. As you read everything, as you're reading hundreds and hundreds of plays a year and seeing theater all over the place, maybe not so much right now, given our current climate. I see it's all virtual, story? but I see a lot. <laughs> what is your favorite theater to read or see? If you get, if you were to get to pick it out instead of all this stuff coming across your desk or screen, you know, what is, what do you, what are you drawn to? Okay. That, thank you. Um, there's not one specific genre or one specific specific style, but what I am, I'll tell you, I am sick of the traditional American theater. I am sick of the you same things over and over again. I love Tennessee Williams, but I'm done for a while. Yeah. I love uh, Sam Shepard, but I'm done for a while. Neil, Neil Simon, all, all of these plays that we see just over and 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 over again, whether it be musical or traditional plays, we've seen them. And not just American theater. I mean, you know, Chekhov and Ibsen, yeah. uh, you know, great. We can pay homage to Shakespeare how many different times, yeah. conceptualize that how many different times. But, but we, we just see so, so much of the same thing over and over again. 
and people are not willing to to take the risk on something new and theater is best when it's at its most risky yeah. when it's when it's um untested right and we've trained our audiences for over a hundred years in the american theater to 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 go back to the standards you know no wonder we have a reboot culture in cinema because we have a reboot culture in storytelling yeah um, we're doing the same things, things over and over again. My good fortune is that I, these plays that I read are typically all new plays. These are all plays that are written today from 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, from, you know, obviously people that are older as well, but, but they're telling us our story. We're so busy trying to figure out what people are thinking or, or what, this, what, what our kids think, right? And they're telling us. They're telling right. us in their storytelling. And it's amazing. And some of the things that they're doing in, 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 in their storytelling is, wow, it is, it is fantastic. It's unforgiving. Just, I, I walk away. Even a even place that I don't really care for, there's usually something in there that I just echoes and resonates within me. You know, that's what I really try to do, trying to figure it out. And, and you know, fortunately for me, I've been trained to, you know, you know working with students, you know, for a couple decades, get to really, you know, look and find where that is. New plays, new plays, absolutely new plays. If I haven't, you know, read it, you know, and you know, it's it's from somebody that has something to say. Gosh, that's that's the Feel play. Feel free I to send read. all any and all of those new plays you're reading our way, so we can figure out a way <laughs> there, to. There's there's so many though. Um, so do you know? And I, I I swear to God, I do not work for these people. Um, <laughs> new play exchange. Do you know that? The name sounds familiar. New play exchange. You can get a reader subscription a writer's subscription or both for the grand total of $12 a year, right? Where you have access to tens of thousands of writers in place and, and you can filter it down to the amount of characters, to gender identity, to one act, 10 minute musical, um, to genre, to keywords. It is, it is the, the ultimate new play library and it's all virtual and it's $12 a year. Um, so at the top of my note list for, for our conversation, <laughs> it, it is, it is the, one of the most phenomenal resources and tools as well. So myself as both a reader and a playwright, you know, I have, you know, my selected works that I have posted on my page Sure. and, um, companies come to me now saying, Hey, they put, put these posts. We have this company in these place fit because you're keyworded or this is the length or this is the amount of characters submit your play to this festival. And so all I have to do is tag that play and boom, it is submitted to that festival. Oh, nice. Way cool. Um, I'm going to back up and we'll, we'll get into up Chimicum Creek for sure. Cause there's so much <laughs> Absolutely. hack and, and, and dig in there. But like I said, as we have this conversation, there's more offshoots that keep coming up. You know, you're talking about bringing, getting all this stuff in and reading all this materials for KCACTF and different festivals that you're reading for and responding to. What advice do you have for playwrights, for new playwrights to get their works out to, to producers and festivals? Uh, first thing is to, to, to just do it, just get it out, right? There are sometimes limits, you know, we'll only take 250 plays. So you have to be somewhat active. A dear friend of mine, her name's uh, Rachel Bublitz. She has a married name, but yes, professionally she goes by Rachel Bublitz. She's just got some amazing work. Uh, I met her through KCACTF. She was a student when I was um, a regional chair. Now she's an instructor. Um, she's just out there. She's, she's going to be one of those playwrights you knew when. Uh, she, she, one year, got, forgive me if I get this number wrong, like 400 submissions in, of her work out there. And, and it was just 
mind blowing to me, right? Um, we get this mentality of, oh, you're going to submit your play, your one play to one festival and get just destroyed when that doesn't happen. It, it's almost more so than being an actor, right? You're going to get rejected because your play is not going to fit every single festival. So you have to be persistent and dogged, write more plays and, and submit to more festivals. New Play Exchange is a great resource for that, but, but that's not the be all and end all. Sure. Right. There's still so many other festivals and be prepared for that rejection. Read your own work, revise your own work, you know, go through that same process that that you do about being your biggest critic. Scrutinize your own work. Um, I had a playwright, uh, another fellow playwright um, who was just really generous. He wrote, read one of my plays on NPX and uh, he said, I really like this play. I just want to let you know had quite a few spelling errors in it or, or uh, right. punctuation errors into it, you know, and, and a lot of players be like, well, what do you know? Right. No, go back in, look at it. And I, I spent that next day correcting all of it. And I was like, wow, I did, I, I didn't stop and do the fine tooth comb with that. And I should have. So I did that with one. And then I had, so we, we, we can pick up so much by these, these, these comments. Sometimes playwrights get a little, because it's their words, it's their thoughts. They're very naked, you know, with, with these thoughts, they get a little defensive sometimes mm -hmm. so open that up and and um, here you don't have to accept everything but hear everything well i think that's one of the things that's been such a a pleasure to work with you on because we've had a couple of things that we changed around with your permission of course because we're just an audio format and it was that conversation i know that this is what this punctuation means and there should be it's read this way so that it should be a look here and a what but it's not there's just not a way to do that in a in a audio format and right. having that conversation yeah no that totally makes sense let's flip this around Ooh, let's adjust this if we tweak this then we can adjust this and it fits better and i think i've been fortunate so far that the playwrights that i've worked with have all been mm -hmm. that way great um so i know that for my side of things that shoe is going to drop here pretty soon where i go oh man this is this is a rough one but we're still you know what i mean absolutely um, it's an absolute pleasure to work with you in that oh, regard about about making that work in a way that that tells your story right my next question for you we're going to start digging into up chimicum creek specifically and i have this posted as a broad question and i'm not sure it's the right question but what about wb i know that that you said a moment ago that you had cancer and so you weren't ready to share this story yet you had to you had to get older and put some distance between you in high school with cancer. Um, but what about, you know, why, why is this story important to you as far as who WB is and, and him bouncing through time? Yeah, that's a, amongst the other things I've been doing is I've been um, working a lot with social justice. Mm -hmm. um, I was an inaugural or interim uh, representation equity and diversity chair nationally for the Kennedy Center. Um, and, and over the last, I would say, 10 years, you know, very much finding my own identity, uh, being somebody who's mixed race, amongst other things. Sure. And this play very much for me is about identity, uh, about who won um, all the things that, that we carry with us forward, not just ethnicity. That's one of the reasons why the spark when it did, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why that, that epiphanous shower uh, allowed me to write this play is because I was able to find the front and address it. Um, instead of just in a myopic one way, oh, boy is sick, boy has cancer, boy dies, right? It, this was um, speaking a little bit more to the nuance, I believe, of, of finding oneself, 
which I hope is is not just for the people who, who share that that same pathway as as WB, but as people who are are trying to to figure it out, right? That the identity is yours to define and not everybody else's to define, um, and and that there are certain things that we do, consciously or unconsciously, in order to fit in, in order to eliminate the dissonance between who people say we are and who who, who we actually are. I think I'm starting to to steer off on that on this response, but no, you know, be is definitely a representation of that overall journey, not just in the hospital, right? There's right. there's different, you know, you know, points in there. Well, and that's I think a really important because this play spans 35, 40 years of this yeah. particular character's life. And one of the things that I found most fascinating and have been reflecting on a lot lately as a Caucasian, you know, white privileged male, there's a part of this play that I'm, for lack of a better term, I'm safe from, mm-hmm. but I don't have to worry about. And then on the flip side of that coin is how many times has my foot gone in my mouth, much like Willie's, uh, WB's friend group, but also still exploring that for myself at 35 years old, what is my identity and recognizing how it's changed over the years and what I don't like about myself and how easy it is once you recognize that to shift. Whereas I think takes Willie a lot longer than it did myself or has, as I continue to do that, the freedom to shift who his identity is and to walk away from what may or may not be important in his world anymore. Right. Absolutely. And again, you know, identity is def- definitely something that that isn't just reserved for s- certain individuals. It's I think everybody has to figure out their identity. It, it's it's if we don't, then then gosh, uh, at least quest to do it. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's perpetual. I think it's never ending, right? As, as especially as we evolve and grow and age and and acquire new relationships and have families or whatever, however people live their lives, jobs, occupations, all that stuff. On the other side of that, for many people that we know that they fight for their identity not to change when the world around them changes and the consequences of that. Yeah, they have accepted an identity of themselves within a world that is changing and they don't want to change their identity. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and as the world changes, they find, okay, well, I can fight that. Right. Or I can go along with it. And that's, that's, yeah, hard. I think that's an interesting dichotomy to look at in the play too. I was going over something. I was preparing my notes for the third episode's introduction and I came across this realization that in act two of the play, we don't see a whole lot from Tim. Red Riggle is out. We don't see him after the fight in the locker room in act one. And we see Coop as he understands who he is and the direction he goes off in. So he's got this understanding and he's off. Willie is still trying to figure out who he is. And Friday, I realized the other day was fighting to keep it where it was. He doesn't ever want to grow up out of that high school, early college party phase. Right. Of course, there's definite, you know, reasons, you know, for that as we find out. I don't want to spoil episode four. With no big Uh, spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. That, That fight between growing up and, you know, finding that new status quo and evolving or, or, clinging to what was clinging to the past. So I have another question. Uh, as far as this as a process, what is your, I'm, I'm curious, this is, I guess, a selfish question. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as this as a, as a medium in a podcast format, how is, 
how has this been for you as a playwright? It's been great um, because it's 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 uh, able to um, <laughs> I'm about to say see uh, hear the play in a completely different way, right? It, it, where where it's, you're definitely emphasizing different textures, right? In this mm -hmm. case, you know the audio textures, different rhythms. Or, you know, anytime you see your your own work produced uh, by a different company, a different place, it's gonna you're gonna pick new things up. But in this particular case, I mean, it, it's it's really just been enlightening, you know, for me to hear hear that happen. Um, you and I got to work on a radio play before, yep. and I get to see your process how specific and deliberate you are with the sound and the creation of not just trying to create the effects, but making sure everything's balanced correctly. So, you know, I've just been just downright giddy to hear, you know, the work that you and your team have been, you know, putting together for, because it is very, very specific. We got to definitely, I can't take all the credit for that because this show, we finally were able to uh, draw in a, a sound designer, uh, Kyle right. Harper, a friend of mine I work with outside of this project as well. Uh, and this has definitely been for him, uh, I, I want to be clear, it's not a learning process, but compared to some of the other things, as I understand it, that he's been working on, we kind of just dropped him in, I, we, I kind of just dropped him into the deep <laughs> end of the pool and went, well, I'll see you at the other side. <laughs> oh, so much learning happens that way, right? Oh, it's, it's been so nice. Um, I think if you haven't already listened to episode three, you'll hear a, a different quality of sound. We were finally... It was my fault. We we set up the time as this was releasing right in the middle of a tech week for us here oh, yeah. in northern Colorado. So it was like, well, this was a horrible time to try to put all this together. And <laughs> week we finally got to sit down together and work through that third episode and, you know, have my, my ear as a director like, okay, can we adjust this? Let's be a little more specific with this. And I think the, the qual we both came out of that meeting and went, yeah, we definitely need to make sure we have time to do this. This is so much smoother. Yeah. Trying to email back and forth how sound fits and where it goes. and Yeah. But what a great process, though. I mean, oh. that's an opportunity to grow and learn. And, you know, I, I, I love opportunities that, that allow for that ability to grow and to teach, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Young artists, you know, if I was to give them some advice is, is don't be perfect. You know, perfection is going to kill you because yeah. it's not going to happen. It's just, it just won't happen. You're not going to please everybody. Perfection won't happen. So just keep on practicing, right? Until it becomes this, this system, this routine, you know, for you to do and to experiment with. And if you don't, if you allow yourself not to be focused on perfection, you find all these happy accidents. Um, yeah. in, in our recording process, I think they were all pulled out just because there was other background noise. But when I was recording with Jose David, I went to, to record with him instead of him coming to me and he lives on on campus like so many campuses there's that 15 minute bell chime oh yes but so his recording his voice only see i mean they're all scenes with him but every 15 minutes way off in the background we would pick up that bell chime you know da 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 <laughs> but it was this wonderful happy accident for me not seeking out perfection like you said willie has pressure of time constantly on him Right. But I never would have as a direct, like, let's layer this in. It just happened to be that way. And I think the same thing happens if you go back and listen to one of the D&D &D games. Mm -hmm. uh, we were recording at, at Quinn Smith's house, who plays Tim. Right. That's the, in the second act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go back, if you go back and listen to that, 
halfway through there, his dog just gets excited when everybody's excited. So there's this, everybody's cheering. And then just in the background, you hear, and I was like, oh, now we have to redo. I don't, I don't have to. There's nothing that says none of these guys has a dog. There's nothing that says they do, but it was just this happy accident where now we just have this little extra flavor to this scene. That's awesome. That is great. And the dog was gets a cameo appearance, an uncredited cameo in the show. So what's, what's the what's the dog's name? I don't remember. That's why she's uncredited. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's great. That's great. My last, maybe my last question for you. No, I have another question. This was a shower moment for on my end. Mm-hmm. We talked about the character of Tim specifically, and if he's on the autism spectrum or if he's just socially awkward and you know that was a a line that we were trying to carefully walk on our end and i had this realization and i asked quinn if he could give us a stutter and i don't know if you've gone back and listened to that um and that was a that was a last minute decision that i didn't reach out to you for in my mind it was it helped us establish why he speaks up when he does and when he's really uncomfortable and it helped Mm -hmm us punctuate some of those moments uh, especially as he gets older and the stutter goes away as therapy would go in and then suddenly something happens and he's stuttering again and I was curious on your take on that yeah um I I I definitely um you know think especially with this medium right with the broadcast only with the ears I think there's definitely something um that gets across with the character with that that choice it's you know I don't somebody asked me before okay is he on the spectrum is he socially awkward does he have to stutter and I think any of these work because he is definitely separate right he is the only character that goes by his actual name right yeah you know he's been brought into this group uh, again with his own identity and I think is the one that really kind of truly sees and empathizes with um WB that entire time right in his in, in his own in his own way so I think it reads, I mean, definitely as, as somebody who's very conscious of their state of, of their self-being, mm-hmm. of their state of being, of their status quo, um, you know, I think whether the character is on the spectrum, socially distant or awkward, sure. um, or, or has something, you know, an impediment that is preventing them to, 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 to be that way. Um, I always just you know, make sure that I want to, you know, be honest and, you know, with, with characters in their identities with disability, right? Right. It got me thinking: Does does this change anything with that speech? Would there be certain certain words, certain ways um, to go about that? Does it change anything? And I don't think I found that yet, right? Um, as we're seeing, um, you know, our, our newly elected uh, president, you know, has has a very similar stutter, and a lot of times the pause in the conversation is like, I know I'm going to stutter with this word. So I'm going to pause myself and I'm going to change my word. I'm going to use it. It's still going to be effective, right? And they've trained themselves to, to, to become that way, right? So that's what I'm talking about. Is, is there an eventual change in pattern in that dialogue, the, the character, Tim, ages, stuff like that. But a huge thing for me to be able to think about, right, as we start to move away to just, you know, thinking centrally WB, all these other characters having their evolution and uh, work with their identity as well. well. I'm glad I didn't offend you in any way and make no, you... No, 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 no. Like it, said, again, these are, these are all, you know, different ways. I, I once had a student direct a play for a directing class and I came in for the big directing. They had lights and sound and everything, you know, and, and they had me in and it was, 
it wasn't a great play, but this brought it to like this kind of goofy depths of like, oh, oh I wrote that. And then they <laughs> took it there. And then oh, it was kind of brutal. It was like somebody kind of just flicking me in the ear the entire time I was watching the play. Uh, not to, not to, to, to belittle the, the student at all. I mean, she's taking it where she wants as I gave her permission to. Sure. So this, 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 the student though, got so much out of it, right? Because they had, they had so much. Watching the, the world premiere of, of Chimican Creek over at the University of Idaho, there was a guest director, he was another MFA. It was, it was so interesting to see some of the choices that were made there, right? So every single time a play that I've written is produced, I'm going to learn a lot from the director from that whole process. So this will bring me to my next question. And I think it's one of the simplest questions to answer and most difficult at the exact same time. In Up Chimicum Creek, do you have a favorite line and what is it and why? Yeah, um, that, that's, that's, that's really hard. I don't know if there would be necessarily a, a line in there that, that stands out as in like, this is going to be quoted forever and ever, you know, put it on my tombstone or anything like that. But I think the one thing, it's the line at the end of the play the one thing I don't, I regret, I don't get to write my second act, mm -hmm. which is kind of the big reveal bomb drop there. And and it brought me back to uh, after our pre-interview, Quinn. Our, I was thinking about some of the things you were asking, and it actually brought me back to my call with my peers in grad school and Rob Kaisley, who mm -hmm. you know was helping me through this process of WB's fate. Is he alive or is he dead? And it was a hard question for me to ask then as we went through the process and we eventually got it produced it was kind of more of the definitive answer and i think that's the definitive i'm not sure if that's a hundred percent accurate because i think there's i mean it is it is the most accurate i've i've given so far but I, there's the story about me going to the hospital for my bone marrow transplant okay and i got in the shower i was in so much pain i got in the shower cleaned I myself shower got myself for. dressed <laughs> a lot of showers, right? I like to be clean. One or two showers a day for me, please. That's kind of weird, I guess. That's boring. I don't know. Back to the boring things. And I remember being driven. My dad was working in Alaska on a fish processor. He was a safety officer on a fish processor. My older sister was in college. My little sister was staying with somebody. And my mother was taking me to the hospital for my bone marrow transplant. And on my way there, on this route I've taken so many different times, down Beaver Valley Road, across the Hood Canal Bridge, into Seattle at the U University of Washington Hospital, I was like, I may never return. I'm going in to basically have the doctors kill me, and I may never return to this place that I grew up, born and raised, you know, all these memories. You know, I made it, you know, and, and our expectation WB doesn't make it, right? But how come that second act exists? And I think there's something about those who face their mortality and accept the fact that they're going to die. So you have to come to some sort of agreement and fact that you're going to die, yeah. right? Or else, how do you? How else do you summon the bravery, right? Unless you accept what the consequence could be. People who get in car accidents, soldiers, you know, people who get sick. I mean, like myself. And I think there's a growth that happens in one's head once you see your mortality. Up until that point, I almost bit it a couple times. It was the second time I had cancer. Um, there was an infection I got in one of my ports that, that just nearly took me out. Um, it was, that, was, that was awful. At that point, I just kind of said, all right, well, 
here it is, right? And, and, and for me, so many things went away. My child, that was the moment my childhood went away. That was the moment everything so much went away. And at, at, after that as well, there's a, a perspective that you can take that is a little bit outside of your body that you can kind of see that. It's not death, but it's kind of a, a numbness to it. Sometimes you can forget, sometimes you don't, sometimes it comes back. There's definitely a coldness to it. So th there, there is a little bit more, a little bit, not a ton, a little bit of truth to the idea that he lives through this, you know, this second act, that he's, you know, seeing this as, a, as an observer almost mm -hmm. of, of what this is, whether it's, you know, expressionist perspective or a dream or... But, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you know, who have gone through these things and, and they're not who they were, whether they're disassociated with it or, or whatever, whatever bargain they made. So that, that right there, the only thing I regret is that I won't get a chance to write my second act. That was kind of, I remember writing that line going, my heart sank, right? Because who did I write that line to? Did I write that to myself to, to smack myself and wake up? You know, what, what was that? What was that line to? And of course, then there's the refrain that we hear a lot, especially that's coming from Tim as well. I want to go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and, and there's a lot of I wish I, I, I want to go home. Right. And we, we realize at some point in our lives, hey, you know what? We can never go home Yeah. again. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hopefully that didn't throw any wrenches in your mix. No, no, no. That was I think that was I was just trying to figure out the best way to segue into an ending but i think that's it right there <laughs> um, but once again uh this is we have playwright benjamin gonzalez joining us uh playwright for our current production of up chimicum creek again thank you for such a beautiful and, and well thought out uh and character driven piece it's been an absolute pleasure to play with this and to analyze and and you know this is i think easily one of the my favorite plays that I've worked on in the last two or three years where I can keep coming back and keep coming back right. and keep learning something because there's just so much sprinkled into it. Well, thank you, Quinn. And, and thank you and to the team for, for bringing it to life again, you know, the, giving it an opportunity to, to be told again, especially on, on a, you know, a, a broadcast that can be disseminated, you know, yeah. so widely and stuff like that. It's, it's a story that, that, you know, is deeply personal, but wanted to share. I mean, people have always come up to ask me, I hate to ask you this question, uh, forgive me for asking this question. Uh, I don't want to offend you by asking this question, but what was it like to have cancer? Like whispered, like, and I'm like, let me tell you, this was the defining moment in my life. There's no reason to keep this a secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what should we be watching from you? What what projects do you have coming up? You'd like to plug or any websites, anything like that? Where where can we find you? Yeah. So I unfortunately do not have a podcast. I've been thinking about doing a podcast. Uh, I, I need more time for I am a professor. I teach a lot of classes. I work on a lot of shows. Um, I work with a lot of students. Sure. Um, I am currently uh, directing a show called Susia, uh, Cinderella Story for the Real World um, with University of Central Missouri that will be broadcast over uh, YouTube um, come uh, February. Um, it is a by playwright Nicole Jost, who I met during Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival um, uh, to actually uh, talk about I, I, I read this play um, uh, three years ago, four years ago, and uh, recommended for the National Partners of American Theater. Um, so it's just a real pleasure to be able to work on this play. Um, so that'll be produced in, in February. I will be continuing to do my, my reading and Kennedy Center work. 
if you do get on new play exchange, I am on new play exchange. I have, I think at least a dozen plays uh, up there, some 10 minutes, some one X, and I have four or five, trying to remember full length plays um, that you can access. I'm, I'm still, uh, hopefully by January, we'll have a second, a, a new draft of uh, the drawing room comedy, uh, Sour Mash, uh, which is completely ridiculous, but, uh, but hilarious. So it's fun uh, to read. Yeah, it's, 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 it's um, you know, uh, I enjoy it because it's just kind of farcical. Um, so I'll be working on that over this break. Uh, and other than that, I, I am still working on building websites and, and trying to spend some more time on my, my craft. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Up Chimicum Creek by playwright Benjamin Gonzalez features the voice talents of Heath Howes, Scott Hurst, Abigail Kochever, Nathaniel Quinn, Quinn Smith, and Jose David Reynosa as WB, with sound design by Kyle Harper and original music by Scott Hurst. Thank you for joining us at Wolverine Theatrics for our production of Up Chimicum Creek. Today we have a special thank you to Rhonda Quinn and Damian Thompson as our first Patreon members. If you've been enjoying our content, please head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash wolverinereads and consider becoming a patron. We here are passionate about creating and celebrating new theater, and becoming a patron helps us to continue creating and improving our craft. For all of us at Wolverine Theatrics, thank you for listening, liking, and sharing. Watch for our next show, The State of Mississippi vs. Davis Knight, excavated by Victoria E. Bynum, processed and dramatized by Marcus J. France, and based on the free state of Jones by Victoria E. Bynum.